0: Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. All right, good morning, folks. Uh, I've already had an eight o'clock class this morning, so I don't know about you, but I'm warmed up. My usual disclaimer when I, when I start this talk is one of the more painful experiences for me uh, listening to talks like this is when uh, pastors talk about economics. I'm an, I'm an economist, not a pastor. So uh, when you get to hear an economist talk about scripture, I hope it's as painful for them as all that was for me. This is my one chance at payback here. So we are going to talk a a little bit about how an economist uh, interprets scripture. Hopefully, um, as we move along, we can uh, unpack some of this stuff. So as I was introduced, I I spent about 20 years thinking very deeply about anti-poverty programs. When I was your age, I had decided that was the field that I was interested in. I was very passionate about uh, developing countries. And to me, it was an intellectual problem. How is it that we make people not poor? We live in a world where the vast majority of people are now rapidly becoming much less poor than they used to be. The process by which that happens is fascinating to me. If you are interested in that, economics is a great way, thing to study. Uh, we have a fantastic program that we're very proud of. I would encourage you to take a look at it. That is not the question we're going to talk about today. If you are interested in, in, de- in development or that process, um, I take a course to Rwanda. We have a program in social enterprise that looks at the application of business to social change and anti-poverty, all fantastic things, which I'm delighted to speak with you about. But I have a different message for you today. Not everybody's interested in that, some of you are. But the message I think that that we can listen to today is applicable to everybody here. And we're going to try to answer this question of uh, how to be rich, right? And, uh, and I, I worded that fairly carefully here because the question is not how to get rich. Uh, for that, you need to talk to our finance faculty, um, and they'll give you all those answers. So we're going to a- ask a, a different question, is how to be rich. Because here's what's interesting. Scripture has something to say about this, on how to, how to be rich. And so we have some uh, various advice on that. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul here, and particularly his letter to Timothy, which was written to him while he was in Ephesus. Now here's what's interesting about that group of people. Uh, The vast majority of scripture was written to people who were very poor. That actually makes it very difficult for us to understand. Uh, At the time, Ephesus was a relatively affluent community, and so Paul is taking some time here to write some advice, and advice that I think is actually very applicable to you because you have a very different set of problems in the groups of people that I'm normally working with. It is unlikely that you will ever be poor. Um, you're welcome. Um, and uh, but that brings its own set of complications for us. And so we want to deal with those today. So the the first thing I gotta, I gotta perhaps persuade you of is that you are rich because you're thinking, look, uh, I'm sitting here, I buy ramen in bulk and I've got $8 trillion of student debt. Um, this, I'm in the wrong place to be talking about, uh, being rich. But, but let, let's see if we can, uh, if I can persuade you on this. So up here on the screen here, imagine here along this uh this bottom we'll call it the x-axis here Uh, i'm sorry for all you non-math people uh the axis here let's think about dollars per day because this is how economists think about whether you're rich or not so over here on the left hand side we have very low dollars per day starting out at something like you know one dollar today two dollars today that's your earnings all the way up to something very high as we move along to the right and so and if we took the number of people there and put that on the y-axis and think the number of people that fit into those categories, the world population would look something like this. Right, where we got this big lump of people at relatively low amounts and then we kind of got this long tail to the left, which means we have a relatively few people that get pretty rich. Right, so, so if we start out there, now about half of the world's population lives in that block. Right, so if we took half the of the, you know, Seven, eight billion people we got on this planet. About half of them make somewhere between $2 and $10 per day. So that's the biggest chunk of people. And that's great. And and that's actually a vast improvement. When the the World Bank sits around and thinks about who is poor, they have a very different view of who is poor than you do. When they start thinking about globally who who is poor, they put that benchmark at about $2 per day. About what you spend on a cup of coffee, or actually less, you know, down here. I, I buy coffee at that Starbucks too. But the important thing about $2 per day is that at that amount, if you get above $2 per day, you have a reasonable probability of being able to buy enough calories to stay alive another day. Like that's the threshold when we start thinking about global poverty and we've seen a massive shift largely through the rise of China and Southeast Asia of people moving out of that category of being extremely poor into what this is actually the global middle class here $2 $10 a day meaning they're not living it up they're not watching Netflix at night in their apartments but it is a vast improvement of where they were before and we've seen that that massive change but but what i mentioned is where do you fall in this Right, so, where do you fall on this? So, here, this is from the Hamilton Project, which looks at uh, the wages of college graduates. And so, most of you should graduate from college. You're doing it right right now. You're in Convo. Get those Convo credits, right? Because here, here's the deal you want to be here. On average, if you get a bachelor's degree, and this is just on average, right? If you get a bachelor's degree, you can expect to earn about $62,000 per year, right? That is vastly different than if you just have some college. You get a big bonus for finishing, folks. Get those Convo credits and finish. Because you don't want to be down there at, the, uh, at the, around the $38,000. So the average college graduate is going to make about $62,000 per year. Uh, many of you will make more than that. A few of you will make less, but that's what you can expect on average. Where does that stick you on that global distribution? Well, it sticks you all the way over there in the top one-tenth of one percent. Right On the global incomes distribution, if you just earn the average of what a college graduate is expected to make that puts you in the top one-tenth of 1% of the global income distribution folks you may not feel it yet but you are astonishingly rich right you are amongst the crop of individuals that will have the most materially affluent lifestyle of any population in the in all of human history right and that's a fairly remarkable privilege to be in but it also comes with some, some interesting caveats to that which we're going to discuss today. So uh, hopefully that, that at least gives you some um, indication that, that you're pretty rich. So let's see what we're going to do with that. Once we figure out that you are rich, what are we going to do about it, right? What does what, what scripture have to say to you? Because like I said, the vast majority of it was written by people not like you at all and had no aspirations to live a lifestyle like you'd have. So the scripture that, that we have here today, and I'm going to just kind of start out again here. Let's start out with just kind of that first sentence here. Command those who are rich, right? That's you, right? Hopefully, we kind of cleared that up. They're they're talking to you now. Command those who are rich in this present world. What's our first bit of advice here? Not to be arrogant. I looked this up in the ancient NIV here. You know, I'm not a Greek scholar, uh, so I looked this up in the ancient NIV. And like, what does it mean to be arrogant? What are they talking about here? Well, arrogant, in this case, what they are warning you against is this idea of having an exaggerated or inflated sense of your own abilities. That's what I mean. And, and which begs the question is that you're likely to be rich. Is it because of something you did? Right? Why are you going to have this particular privilege? And, uh, and so we want to ask this question, how, why are you going to be rich? Or, or what's going to be the cause of that? And, you know, we have some people who have some expertise on this. We have a self-noted rich guy. He likes to talk about it quite a bit. And he's written a book on this. And, uh, and so this is a quote. Ironically enough, this isn't a quote about Donald Trump. This is a quote of Donald Trump speaking about himself in the third person. Which, you got to love that guy. <laughs> so, so, love him or hate him, Trump is a man who is certain about what he wants and sets out to get it. Notes hold the bar. Uh, this, but this, you know, and I bring this up because it's kind of funny. Uh, But but this is is indicative, right? We tend to think we've done this ourselves, right? I've worked hard, I got into Stanford University, I'm taking a hard major, I'm staying up late at night studying and I'm gonna get a good job because I don't wanna move back home with my parents. I did this myself. And you know, it's a little more complicated than that. You're likely to be rich for a variety of different reasons. Probably the most significant one is that you won the geographic lottery. All right, let's make no mistake, where you were born matters a whole lot more than what you do, right? You on the geographic, like this is a map here and it, and it looks a little funny because what they've done, and I like how they do this, they've stretched these, these countries in and out relative to their per capita income. So if we just took what the average income uh, of somebody in that country is expected to make, then we get a picture that looks like this. And so you notice up there that um, some countries like the United States Are disproportionately large because by the very nature of you being born in this country you are swimming in a pool of Fantastically rich people and guess what it's a whole lot easier to get rich if you're around other rich people right unlike say Africa here, which is this tiny little sliver which has a large number of people but per capita income is astonishingly small a mere fraction of what uh, of what you can expect so you know as a first point point. You've done the most, thing you, most important thing you can do to be rich is that you were born in the right place, right? There are some places, you know, I guess you could have been a little bit more lucky, got, gotten born in Luxembourg or Switzerland, but there's not too many places where the, the pool's deeper than it is here. But that's, if that's not enough, something else happened that was really great to you. You likely, knowing where uh, Sanford draws its student body from, you won the genetic lottery. Because right, it's not just great enough that you were born in a fantastically rich place, but you were probably, even within that country, born to a relatively rich family. Right, most of you, though not all, the most of you were born into a relatively rich section of this population. So here's how economists think about it. Is if we lined up everybody in the United States from, from the very poorest to the very richest— Right? we just lined everybody up and then we divided them into fifths so you had the kind of the fifth poorest and, the and the next fifth poorest and the next fifth poorest and the next fifth poorest and the next fifth right by 20 percent most of you are drawn from that top 20 percent. right that top what economists call quintile and here's what's great here's what's great for you if you were born in that top quintile the odds of if your parents and you, you know you came out of a family that was in that top quintile the odds of you staying in that top quintile are 41%. You have a 41% chance as if you were born in the top 20% richest family, you have a 41% chance of staying there. You only have a 7% chance of dropping down to the poorest group of people. All right? This is what economists think about when we when we talk about income mobility. We have for a country like this relatively little income mobility. And so conversely, if you were born in the bottom 20%, you're in the poorest 20% of people. You only have a nine percent chance of ever jumping to the top, and you have a forty-one percent chance of staying exactly where you are, right? So that's bad news for those folks, and something we would love to see change. But if you are in that top twenty percent, that's great news for you, right? Because the odds of you ever being poor, though it may not seem like it now, are minuscule, right? Minuscule odds. So you've you've done two things right, right? You were born in the right place, and you were probably born to the right people. For staying rich. But what that also means is that it wasn't really up to you. You didn't do anything. I mean, last time I checked, it's really hard to kind of change who you were born to or where you were born. But that allows a degree of humility for what you got. Because you didn't have to do anything for that. So, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. So the first thing we say is don't be arrogant because most of why you're rich wasn't because of anything you did. But there's more to unpack from this. Nor put their hope in wealth. Now, again, this is one of those um, kind of phrases that's a little bit difficult to interpret here. So, I'm going to go to an old kind of C.S. Lewis interpretation of hope, and and I'm going to change the question a, a little bit here. And we're going to ask the question: Is does money make you happy? Right? I mean, this is kind of important. Um, when we say, are we going to put our hope in wealth? I think we can phrase that question Is is is, is money something that, that's going to be satisfying to you? Is it going to make you happy? Now, oddly enough. Uh, economists have studied this topic quite a bit, right? You I mean, it's kind of interesting. We, we think about money a lot. Money's important. Um, it's an interesting question and an important one to be self-aware to say, does money make you happy? So let me, let me take a quick poll here. Raise your hand if you think more money will make you more happy. Stick your hand up. It's okay. I don't, I don't judge. There we, we got our one economist down here that thinks so. If that, that helps you shade your answer. All right. Raise your hand if you think more money will not make you happy. Right, that's kind of this negligible fact. All right, we got a few people there. All right, raise your hand if it's like, more money, more problems, right? Just like, it's gonna make you worse, right? Yeah, anybody there? Like, I would prefer to have less money. I'm, I'm sure we got a guy up here that would probably take some of it if you'd like to get it off your hands. Um, th- I mean, this is an interesting question, right? Does money actually make you happy? Economists have thought about it and done a lot of research, because we can ask, right? We can, we, this is a testable idea. So it turns out, like many things in economics, the answer is that it's, it's complicated and it depends here's one thing that is true being poor makes you sad right of that we are fairly certain living below a certain income level demonstrably makes you feel worse right and you are less happy you are less satisfied with your life however simply getting more money doesn't automatically convert into increased life satisfaction or life happiness right it's actually very difficult to convert money into happiness it's a hard thing to buy but being poor does make you sad so there's a lot of things when economists research this there's a lot of things we now know that you can actually do to turn your wealth into happiness the things that actually do matter right because it's not what you think so here's some things that actually do matter oh and there, this is my one joke there is one guy that is going to be happy that you're rich it's that guy right and if you don't know who he is um you'll know about six months after you graduate because he'll come ask you for some of it so he's really hoping that you're going to get rich you know regardless of whether it makes you happy or not it's going to make him happy so you know get rich regardless all right, so what, what makes you happy? What, what does economics say about that? And so um, here's one thing that, that's gonna make you happy find meaningful employment, right? Uh, the, you know there's there was this book that was going around a number a number of years ago That was kind of was called like the, the eight-hour work week I may not have the, the right number of hours right now. and it was like this guy He's kind of one of these bro guys and he's like, you know Just like just start your own business and then sit on a beach, you know And you know work off the internet eight hours a week and then just you know sip margaritas the, the rest of the time And that's the way to life satisfaction Well, what economics has told us is that that's actually not true at all like not working a life of leisure is actually not very satisfying at all What will give you a lot of satisfaction or a lot of happiness in life is finding something to engage your time that you draw meaning from. Hopefully that's your job, right? And we're actually quite serious when you need to find some meaning from your job, but that's one of the highest indicators of people who describe themselves as, as satisfied with their lives and happy are people that draw significant meaning from their work. Right, so keep that in mind as you're thinking about your vocations and you're thinking about your major. Simply earning a lot of money isn't terribly satisfying, but, but drawing meaning from your work actually does. Meaningful relationships, this goes without saying, but you don't act like it. Right? Finding that certain other person, having good friends, founding a spouse that, that, that you can trust and live your life with is surprising. In fact, this matters more than anything else right hands down but it's not something per se that you spend a lot of time in. I always you know I always tell my students in class like you know do your homework but like work real hard on finding that other person like it's well worth your time All right make no mistake so you know find a date once you're done with here uh, because literally one of the most important things for your life satisfaction is finding somebody finding meaningful relationships uh, in order to share it with and so don't underestimate don't short change that that's uh, that's really a powerful indicator of, of your life satisfaction Healthy and balanced lifestyles, again, this, this is, is sort of obvious, but, it, but it's not. We graduate a lot of accounting majors, a lot of people that are going to go work for Coopers or finance for some um, investment house. Those folks, those folks are looking forward to 68-hour weeks, right? And you look, you got to pay your dues, I know it. But in the long run, right, in the long run, a healthy, balanced lifestyle where you can find time for outside activities and relationships and these other things along with healthy work, Those things matter a lot one of the one of the most important investments that I didn't follow my own advice here one of the most important investments you can make is living close to work nothing makes you unhappier than a long commute right and so places to spend money on you know when I first moved to Birmingham um, I was like Homewood those house prices are crazy I'm living out in Helena right because it's cheaper houses big mistake don't do that right because it's literally those commutes that this idea that I'm wasting 30, 40 minutes per day, each way, in the car, not with my family, not at work, is one of the worst ways to spend your time. So be wise in how you're allocating your resources. Live in that little shack in Homewood, or or wherever it is near to work, because it matters, your time matters. Experiences, not things. We tend to want to invest in things. A big house, that great car, uh, you know, the flashiest new jewelry. Turns out those things don't matter a whole lot, even to the people that buy them. What does matter are experiences. Right? And I found my students are actually pretty good at this. They understand this. Because here's what's great. Those things last forever. That trip to Disney World with your family, it seemed terrible at the time. You're like, this is miserable. When can I get out of this accursed kingdom? But but here's what's great. Here's what's great. Here's how your brain works. And And if you understand this, you can live a wiser life. You forget all the bad stuff. Right, you forget all the bad stuff. Your your mind automatically dumps, and you remember all the good things. And then it lasts forever. You're like, hey, remember that time that you know with your friends and we this, and you forget how irritated you were at them. You forget how long that car ride was. These are long-lived assets, right? These memories, and particularly now, you know, and I didn't have this when I was your age. You know, now you can like record them forever. You know, they're always on your Instagram feed or your Facebook page, like. I use those those social media things because they are ways to collect these memories and these memories are some of the most precious things you have and when you're your age and you can deliberately invest in them that will yield more happiness than any kind of extra house or nice car or vacation home or all these things. It's those long lived assets that research has shown us can make a remarkable difference in your level of happiness. Say the course. This is a sense of just ballast in your life. You know those people you know those people that are neither swayed by good news right they're, nor are they ruffled by bad news in their life they have a sense of ballast where they can just simply stay the course those kind of folks report higher levels of happiness than people when things are great they're great when things are terrible they're terrible if you can maintain a sense of perspective that things that matter a lot now aren't going to matter five years from now right those th- folks that can develop those habits report much more lifelong, lifelong happiness and finally, fight the hedonic treadmill. Um, this, is, this is one we could spend an entire lecture on. I'm not going to do that. The word comes from hedonism, right? But the enjoyment of material things, every time you buy something, right? That new shirt, that new cl- that new get that new apartment or your first house or your first car purchase, it feels great, right? You anticipate it, it feels great and it lasts for about 20 minutes and then you're habituated to it, right? All of a sudden, that new house, now it's just more to take care of, right? That new car, now it's just higher insurance payment. Right? If you can recognize that about yourself, that all of, those, all of that excitement about that new thing, those new things is very short-lived. If you are aware of that and you can invest your time and energy in other things, you will live a much more satisfied life. Fight the hedonic treadmill because every time you buy something, that satisfaction lasts about 20 minutes, and then you got to move on. you got to buy something bigger than that. Right? Understand that about yourself. So, Command those who are rich. Remember, that's you. Not to be arrogant because you didn't do it. Right? And to not to put your hope in material wealth. It has its uses, right? But it won't, it won't in the long run buy happiness, particularly if you're not smart about it. Right? Command them then. And so, so what should we do with this wealth? What does the scripture tell us here? What should we do with all that wealth that you are going to have? It says, well, here, here's what you should do. To do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So, you know, that's a lot of things on there. Basically, it's, it's be nice and philanthropic. Right? And, and here's the good news. In the United States, we are actually a pretty philanthropic group of people. We give about $360 billion to charity in the United States. And you know what? That seems like a lot. And it is. Like $360 billion is a lot of money. But we need to put it in perspective here. In fact, we're, the United States is really an outlier. We're, we're far more philanthropic than, than most countries around the world. We give a lot more money to charity. But let's put that in some perspective. We have about 1.6 million charities in the United States. And by the way, that $360 billion, that's all in. That's churches, uh, when you give, you know, the people running over there running the telethon to education to your local food shop, pantry, that's everything all in, about $360 billion. That is about the same uh, amount of money as the market capitalization of Exxon, right? So. All of the 1.6 million charities out there have about the same amount of capital to work with as Exxon does it's about half of what Google has to work with it's about half and so uh, it seems like a lot of money but it's spread pretty thin and and the vast majority of it goes to religion as you might imagine the vast majority of of charitable giving is people giving to their churches the next largest category is education when we start to getting into stuff like you think of um, like charities that are actually out there working in the communities helping people that's a relatively small fraction about 9% of that 360 billion dollars is is what goes to that uh, everything else is is uh, education healthcare, care um, and uh, religious giving we're also fairly generous with our time we uh, we give about 7.9 billion hours uh, of our time in volunteering um, and you know economists we got to stick a number on everything so we we estimate that that's worth about hundred eighty four billion dollars so we're both very generous with our time and with our money but in the scheme of things it's spread very thinly over a lot of organizations so the question is is like why should we do it Um, it's easy and I, and I, I teach a lot of this stuff and do a lot of fascinating research on how effective is this charitable giving in fact the entire social entrepreneurship program is trying to figure out all right, how can we be most effective in this giving How can we create the most effective organizations that are doing the best things to make the most impact? But the question is, is why do we do it? What does Scripture tell us? Why we should be generous? Why is this a commandment for those who are rich? Well, we get some clue out of another Scripture here, looking at a Mark 12 here. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture here. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. But it has some deep insights here in terms of why we should give. So let me read it here quickly. Jesus sat down. He's kind of sitting there with the disciples. And he says, and he sits down opposite to a place where there's offerings. And they were put in watching a crowd there giving money into the temple treasury. You know, so I just picture these people lined up. You know, you you grew up probably going to church. You know, they're passing the community basket there. And Jesus points out something. He says, there are many rich people and they threw in large amounts. And we're like, well, that's great. Right, we're supposed to give all that money away. It's like, that's fantastic. You know, and making their development officers really happy. Right, giving in large amounts. And Jesus says, wait, wait wait a minute here. He says, but there's this poor widow. And she came up and put in two small copper coins right copper like seriously copper and worth only a few cents and calling his disciples like come over here come over come here he said truly I tell you this poor widow has put in more into the Treasury than all the others and they're like you're crazy you were like the worst guy at math ever right she put in something that was virtually worthless Right, we got all these people that can do so much good, they can have so much impact, they can do so many things with all these resources, and Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Right? You don't understand how this works. Right? That woman who put in virtually nothing, what was distinctive about her? What was distinctive about what she did? Is that it was indicative of what, she, of what her intent was. It's that she had very little. She wasn't rich, but she put in all she had. What Jesus, I believe, is telling us there, he says, your money, you're giving your money away, isn't about what you do, right? It's not about the impact you have. He's like, I don't need your money. That's the great thing about being God. I don't need it. This is what this giving whole thing is all about. It's about you, right? That we're actually commanded to give and to be generous, not because God needs your stuff, it's because you need to give away your stuff, because being attached to it is corrosive. Right? that having an unhealthy relationship with your own resources actually inhibits your relationship with him. He understood that. He was trying to teach his disciples that, and it transforms how you think about giving. Right? I feel guilty every time I teach my classes because we emphasize so much. Here's how you measure impact. Here's how you're efficient with your resources, and all those things are important. But in the end, that's not what matters. Right? What matters is what, trans- what giving does for you. Right? It transforms who you are. It trans- transforms your relationship with your money. Right? And that's what Jesus is telling us why he's commanding to rich people. He doesn't need your money. He can do it just fine without it. But what he needs is for you to have a healthy relationship with it so he can be Lord of it all. Here's my favorite part, and we'll wind down with this. Why should we do all this? right? So Jesus, So Paul is laying out instructions. He said, look, you're rich. That's you guys. Don't be arrogant. You didn't do it. Right? Have a healthy view of your money. It is not going to make you happy. Be wise in how you use it. And lastly, be generous with it because that's the only way you can have a healthy relationship with it. But here's my favorite part. Why? Like, why, you know, why do you go out of the trouble to deal with this? There's a lot of things in Scripture, you know, you know, don't make idols and do this and do that because, you know, God is worried about him receiving glory, right? The, 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 this, is, this is how you're going to be holy. And that's not, that's not the message we get here. Here we have, and this is, this is always appealing to an economist, we have Paul here appealing to our self-interest. He's like, no, 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 no. This isn't about God. This is about, this is about me trying to help you out. Because listen to, what, listen to what is the, how he phrases it at the end here. He says, why are you going to do all this? In this way, you will lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming of the age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. He said, I'm offering you this advice because this is what's going to let you live a fulfilling life. This is how you were made to act, right? This is, this is how you were designed to operate. This isn't about what God needs. This isn't about what, about what he needs to get done. This is about helping you lead a satisfied and fulfilling life. And that's wisdom, folks. The ability to be self-aware and wise about the resources that you will have. It right? doesn't seem like an now. Right, but how you are going to deal with your wealth is one of the more significant decisions you're going to have to deal with over your lifetime. Right, and and Paul out here is laying out this playbook of how you deal with it in a responsible and self-aware. And he's like, look, I'm doing this for you. Right, and that that is a meaningful impact to me because it's it's saying, it's it's like your parents sitting around giving you some advice. And Paul here has told us how to interact with our own wealth. And so, you know, I think as our primary takeaway here is that though it does sit, seem like it now you are l- going to live in a time where you have control right over a m- set of resources that was largely unmanageable in human history and in fact one of the reasons the Bible is very difficult to understand it was not written to people like you right it was written to people who were largely oppressed and who were very poor and that makes it difficult to understand but here we have this peak that God says no no, no I've got something to say to you too right something specifically for you I would take that advice very seriously Right? And how you deal with your wealth represents not who you are, but it also affects your relationship with him. How we doing? Yeah? Alright, that's, uh, yeah, that's all I got. So I'm going to go ahead and ask Sydney to come up here and uh, say a prayer for us. Thank you, folks.
1: Now we come to a time of prayer. I ask that you follow along on the screen and read responsibly the sections in yellow. With all our heart and with all our mind, we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Lord, hear our prayer. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, guide the nations of the world into the way of justice and truth, and establish among them peace, that they may become the kingdom of God. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray this morning on behalf of Niger. As a nation with an overwhelmingly large Muslim population, we pray that the light of your truth reaches them. We pray for the commissioning of missionaries to Niger, Niger is in need of missionaries in every part of the country. Raise up a generation of those called to go and prepare them for the task at hand. We pray that the missionaries currently working in Niger, including our Stanford missionaries, experience your patience and encouragement every day. We pray that they continue in their works of aid for health and education, so that the people may know your name. Give them the gift of your wisdom as they translate your word for numerous local people groups. We pray for the church in Niger, however small, it is our hope that they remain strong in faith and perseverance in order to spread the gospel. May every believer in Niger feel connected to the local community, as well as the global Christian church. We pray also for the people of Niger. As young people looking for change, may they be changed themselves by your compassion and love. Open our hearts to the hope of your truth. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Lord, hear our prayer. Please repeat with me the prayer on the screen. Lord, teach us to be generous. Teach us to serve you as you deserve. To give and not to count the cost. To fight and not to heed the wounds. To toil and not to seek rest. To labor and not to ask for reward. Save that of knowing that we do your will. Amen. You're dismissed.
0: For more information about Sanford University, check out sanford.edu.